0: Well, hello. It's so good to see all of you here in our patio and those in the sanctuary and those at home. I don't know if you realize this, but today's the first day in which uh, kids who will be starting kindergarten um, are now in their new worship service with uh, uh, Living Oak Kids Ministry, and they worship at 930. And also, those who are rising sixth graders, uh, today was the first day in which they worship with the youth ministry or catapult ministry uh, at 1130 or right now, they're in Chapel 1. And also, those who are rising freshmen in college, uh, today's the first day you're joining us during our service, the adult service, as a, a full-fledged like, part of the adult ministry. Are there any freshmen here, a rising freshmen? I, I know there's some of you, and you, you don't want to raise your hand, I'm pretty sure. There you go. There's a few there. Hey, let's give them a big... And I kind of want to lump the sophomores into that group or rising sophomores because last year you were freshman, but you probably didn't go to college. You were probably just home, uh, you know, streaming and that that was just like, wow, this college thing is not very fun. Um, I want to say to you that you have about two months with us Uh, before you go off to college, whether it be local or away where you're in the dorms and life will be very different because mom's not there to wake you up and say you're late for school. And in fact, college is a weird place in which you can be late to class, not even show up to class. No one cares. Really. There's not a curfew in your dorms. You can come home as late as you want, and your roommates probably won't care you can open up a credit card and sign your old name to it. No parent has to co-sign if you're over the age of 18 and you can get into financial trouble as soon as you get to college. It is a, a troubling and interesting time as you transition into adulthood and so, I want to say to those of you who are going to become freshmen in college and or sophomore in college as you go, go off and become adults, that I'm so glad you are with us, because during these about two months while you are still here with us in service, I want you to look at this as a time of orientation. I want you to, to, to listen carefully and to soak it all in before you go because. You see, we're going through the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is this book in which after 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wandering, it's kind of like living with your parents for 440 years, after all that, you're going to go into the promised land. And Deuteronomy is orientation. God, through Moses, tells them, before you get there, I want you to know all of this. And so for the next... Uh, two months or so, while we're going through the book of Deuteronomy, I want you to soak it in as if this was for you. Uh, of all the the things, though, in Deuteronomy, if we can distill everything down to a particular uh, set of truths, and in fact, I would say this. If we can take all of the Bible and distill it down to... Uh, a a book of the Bible or even a chapter of the Bible or even a few verses of the Bible I would say that you can distill everything down to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9 would you turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9 if you have your paper Bible open it up if you have your app fire it up if you haven't installed an app on your smartphone uh, you can do so Um, There there are plenty of really good apps out there. The truth that will be presented here will become the basis of the Hebrew people as they go into the Promised Land. In fact, it will become the basis of the foundational truth of the the three major religions of the world that we know in terms of monotheism, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. In fact, it will be the foundation of uh, Western civilization that is based upon uh, those Judeo-Christian ethics. We're going to look at it in three parts, uh, the one great truth, uh, the great command, and the great calling. So there is a propositional, propositional truth and then two commands. The propositional truth is found in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the, tr- uh, the command, the great command, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then the great calling. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontal, uh, frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So these three points, one great truth, a, a truth, and then a, one, uh, the great command, of an imperative, and then the great calling. And imperative. Now, I'm going to look at these not in parallel, but in sequence, meaning um, the first, we get the truth, and then the second point builds upon that first point, and the third builds upon or is an outflow of the second point. So let's look at the first point, the one great truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, in the world of physics, uh, Uh, Two of the great thinkers, Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking, developed uh, a lot of uh, theories and thoughts and uh, postulates. And uh, two of the ones that really took shape and and impacts our modern understanding of the universe is uh, the theory of relativity and quantum physics. Uh, One defines, uh, kind of describes how the cosmos works in this big picture, and the other kind of describes how the small things work. But physicists throughout the the ages have sought uh, to look for a, a, a an idea, a theory that explains everything, uh, how the universe and the planets work within each other, and and how if that can define and describe how the smallest of particles uh, work with each other. And they call this. Theoretical theory, something that they've been searching for, is the, the theory of everything. Is there one formula, one idea that describes how the universe works just overall? And it's been a little bit of an elusive search for them. But Albert Einstein once said to one of his students, I want to know how God created the world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in this spectrum, or this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are just details. Albert Einstein, one of the greatest minds the modern uh, science has ever known, has said the universe has to make sense. It has to be logical. There has to be some core truth that defines and explains everything. I want to know the mind of God, he calls it. If there is a theory of everything that describes not simply physics, but everything, in fact, uh, How did time begin? Was there something before time began? Uh, What is there after life, and what is the meaning of life? Is there something that uh, exists beyond what we perceive in terms of reality? Is there a theory of everything in the spiritual, a transcendent uh, manner? One of... um, uh, if you would have asked Albert Einstein, as you were growing up, is there a transcendent truth that you grew up with? Was there something in which uh, your parents would have prayed in the morning and in the evening that kind of described how the universe works and how everything works with each other? He would say, yes, it's the Shema. The Shema is, uh, in Hebrew means here. And an observant Jew would every morning say this prayer and every evening say this prayer. And so they would know it. Most Jews would know this prayer. uh, And and in their native language, in in the Hebrew language, and it is the John 3.16, the Lord's Prayer for the Hebrew people. If you ask them what it is, and is there an English equivalent, they would say, yes, it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 4, it begins, Shema Israel. Hear, O oh Israel, the Lord our God is, the, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the foundation, the basis of how we ought to understand everything. And if there's an orientation that God is giving to the Hebrew people as they enter into the promised land, they say, I want you to understand and know this foundational reality, that the Lord our God is one. It may seem like, well, is that such an important thing? Um, And and it is beyond what we understand. God is one, meaning there is not many, many gods in which uh, a civilization or a city or country or people can choose from. There's only one God. Um, There's only one God, and it is not uh, uh, the spirit of our ancestors hovering around us. Uh, There is only one God. There is not a yin and a yang, a a good and a bad, a, a positive and a negative that oppose and balance one another. There is only one God, indivisible, unique, and independent being who is creator and not creation. And this is the one theory of everything that describes everything. And I want to say that this belief, firm belief, In verse 4, that the Lord our God is, uh, the Lord is one, is probably what set apart the Jewish people from almost all the other peoples in civilization throughout history. And that made them not only unique, but hated. The reason being is that, if you can imagine the, the, Uh, the Roman Empire, in which every city and every uh, people group had their own gods, and when they uh, would speak to the Jewish people, the Jewish people uh, refused to recognize or bow down to any other gods, and they would say, there's only one God, your God doesn't exist. It is probably the reason why the Jewish people had been so persecuted and despised throughout the generation. They were seen as intolerant and arrogant. Why can't you just agree to disagree that you worship Yahweh and we'll worship Artemis and, and you, we agree to honor each other's God? The Jewish people said, no, the Lord our God is one. There is only one. You know, um, in our modern civilization, we think that we've gone beyond polytheism we don't necessarily believe, necessarily, that, well, uh, you know, the United States worships this god while another country and culture worships this idol, etc. We, we basically think, no, no, we're kind of beyond that now, that we're no longer polytheists, worshiping little idols and things of that nature. But I, I, I will argue that we're more polytheistic than we can possibly ever imagine. In fact, we're more polytheistic than ever, I believe, in the history of humanity. Tim Keller points this out. The dominant belief of today is there is there also are many gods depending on the individual. Because today, the dominant belief is everybody has the right to believe in God as it is meaningful to them, and therefore, there are many gods. So the dominant thought is everyone can form their own opinion of what God is. Uh, Brett McCracken, in his article, The Depressing Dead End of Your Truth, says this, Your truth. Those two words are so entrenched in our lexicon today that we hardly recognize them for the incoherent nightmare that they are. Among other things, the philosophy of your truth destroys families when a dad suddenly decides his truth is calling him to a new lover, a new family, or even a new gender. It's a philosophy that can destroy entire societies because invariably one's personal truth will go to battle with another person's truth. And devoid of reason, only power decides the victor. Keller and McCracken are saying this, that in our society today, everyone claims that they can decide what truth is and what God is. And and that truth and reality is really relative and subjective and what we want it to be. We, in our culture, and I I believe in America especially, we're so uh, accustomed to having our individualized, personalized, whatever, whether it be a uh, slice of pizza or um, our view of what is true. McCracken writes that this is problematic. Our post-truth age pitches the individual self as a primary source of truth. Follow your heart, live your truth, and so forth. Authenticity and excessive individualism are ultimate values. Authorities of every kind outside the self are now being questioned, their values seen only insofar as they serve and validate us. Institutions now exist merely of to affirm us, not to form us. And when you get to college and when you, ha- when you, when you uh, begin interfacing with other students or, or your professors, this is one of the things that you will battle. That it is intolerant of any person to say that there is only one truth, that truth is relative and subjective and we don't want to offend anyone, so we want to affirm everyone's version of what is true and what is Real. Keller continues, uh, concludes, but God is saying here in this passage and in this verse, in this Shema, no, there is only one real God, and it's me. You don't construct me. God is saying here, I construct you. Therefore, there are not many of me depending on you. There is one of me, and you depend on me on me. Listen, we don't get to choose a version of truth according to our liking. Truth is true regardless of whether we like it or not. Reality is reality whether we believe it or not. Let me give you an example. I don't know of any person that likes the concept or the reality or the truth of death. People can spin it any way they want, but as far as I know, aside from Jesus Christ, Um, And one other person or two other people in the Bible, everyone eventually had to come face-to-face with the reality of death. It doesn't matter what people believed about it. It doesn't matter whether people liked it. Truth is truth. And so so the prayer every morning and every evening is there's only one God. That has to be the foundational truth of the universe. Let's go to the second point, the great command. The implication of this idea of the great truth is the, uh, the great command, verse five and six. "You shall love the Lord, your God." The Scripture talks about in that, and in this chapter also that we have to fear Him, worship Him serve him, love him. They're all kind of in the same family. Uh, we know this in the New Testament as a great commandment. When, when uh, experts in the law came to Jesus and said there's so many laws, and in fact, if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you'll, you'll find chapters after chapter after chapter about how the, the nation of Israel should conduct itself, laws. And we find out that they're, they're all based upon a set of laws, the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are also based upon the foundation of one command. Love the Lord your God. And the rest will flow from it. One of the things our modern culture believes about love is that it is a feeling. And that feelings are beyond our control. That feelings are something we simply... Um, respond to and, and we in fact um, modern and the more um, sophisticated we are we just accept how we feel and we live consistent to what we feel so uh, modern thinkers think that it is uh, inappropriate to command love how do you command someone to feel something but it says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul And with all your might. One of the unfortunate things about uh, our understanding of English is to limit heart to simply emotions. And while it should more be the center of one's being. That you should love the Lord your God, uh, yes, with your emotions. But with the core being of your heart, with your soul and all your might. It is not simply a feeling, but it is also uh, your decisions and your actions. Not simply what you feel, but what you do and and the decisions that you make along with it. If devoid of all of that, it is not true love per se, or a love has to proceed with all of those things. Let me give you an example. You send your daughter off to college, and after her sophomore year, she comes back home for the summer, and she says, Mom, Mom, what is it, honey? I met a man. Okay. Tell me about him. Well, he said to me in this just beautiful, romantic uh, way, and I I just, he swooned, and I swooned, that he has feelings for me. Uh, And that he wants to spend the rest of his life with me. Okay. Tell me more about him. What do you know about him? Well, Every Friday from 7.30 to 9.30, we see each other, and we're just, he's just there for me. He looks me in the eyes and whispers sweet things, and I, I, I'm developing feelings for him. Well, tell me more. Where does he live? What does he do? He says, I don't know. He told me never to come to his house. And he was very clear I should never visit him at work or send me flowers or anything like that at work that his coworkers cannot see me. He told me not to text me during the day or in the evening. He told me that he can't be social media friends with me, nor does he think that I should meet any of his friends. But he's there for me Every Friday, 7.30 to 9.30, until, unless he's tired or is on vacation or when it's busy. Other than that, he's there for me. He has feelings for me. Mom, what are you going to say? Honey, I think he's married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he may have feelings for you on Friday, 7.30 to 9.30 when it's convenient for him, but that's not love, honey. He's using you. He may like his time with you during that particular moment. But no, love is so much more encompassing. True love is the ability to forsake all others and say, you are the one that I want to give my heart, soul, and might to. You know, of course, God is not a college, a helpless college student, but the Lord, when he says we ought to love him with all our heart, soul, and and Mike, I hope you understand what I am saying. That if all we give him are Sundays from 11:30 to about uh, 12, 12:45, uh, uh, when it's convenient for us, when we're not busy, um, but other than that, please don't interfere with my work. Please don't come to my home and tell me how to uh, conduct my home, and please don't um, come. To where my friends and I are playing I feel uncomfortable with all that do you understand what I'm saying that's not love and I'm not saying that we need to be perfect but what does it mean for us to love the Lord our God it has to be all encompassing it has to involve every fiber of our being and I know we're so all of us are so far from it but you know just ask, ask yourself this question if you had to simply ask God God where is it I know I don't love you in all of these areas. There must be a thousand areas in which I'm not loving you with all my heart, soul, and uh, might, but what is my greatest area in which I need to do better, which I'm uh, lacking in? What is the area that, that you are speaking to me the most? I would ask that you take that and confess and say, God, I want to love you better here. Listen, emotions will follow. You know, I'm going to talk about this in the third point a little bit more, but I want to uh, talk about this right now a little bit here. I know that as as I've been at our church for almost 30 years, that um, oftentimes parents uh, bemoan the fact that uh, their their kids, especially as they get to junior high school, and especially high school and then post-high school, parents... I get sad and distraught when they see their kids leaving the church or leaving the faith. And, and they start living a lifestyle that, oh, that you just don't condone or like or feel comfortable with. And oftentimes it happens when, when the child has developed now a will of their own and is no longer trying to people-please their parents. That it is more important for them to do what they want to do than to appear cute and accepted by their parents. That's when they begin to rebel. I want to say, uh, and with caution, but in all honesty, listen parents. Do you know that your kids are being discipled spiritually? Discipled meaning their their, their minds, their emotions, and their their decisions are being molded right now? That they're being mentored? They're being taught? And do you know who their spiritual disciple maker is? Do you know who is their greatest influence? It's you, parents. You are your child's greatest spiritual discipler. You're saying, well, wait a minute, Pastor C, that's wrong. We never talk about spiritual things with our kids. We never ask them to do this or that. We give them all the freedom. That's up to them. I leave all the Bible and spiritual talk to their Sunday school teacher, or youth teacher, or the church. I never do that. Exactly. Research has shown. That children's values are most greatly influenced by the values of parents more than anyone else. It doesn't even come close. And if you say, but but we don't try or we don't know what we do, and etc., I, I wanna say that, um, that parents and, and the reason why God is saying that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and then say you need to teach your children. The the reason why this comes first is because um, you can't teach what you don't own. And if you don't own it and you try to teach it, your kids will detect the dissonance, the disconnect, the hypocrisy. And so listen, if there's a disconnect between what you say to your kids this is the life that you must live, you must love the Lord your God, but you yourself don't live that life. Your kids, and this is why it happens, when they get to a certain age, they'll sniff the hypocrisy in you. And as disciple makers, what will happen is that your kids will either grow up and resent you for, their, for your hypocrisy, or they will Emulate your hypocrisy. You are your kid's greatest influence. Kids will either emulate your genuine faith or emulate, emulate your disingenuous faith. They will catch, you don't even have to say anything, they will catch what you are living. Let me now get to the third point the great calling. This is the passage that I used when I used to teach baby dedication classes. You shall teach them diligently to your children, is what verse seven says. And this is a calling, not to the Sunday school teacher, the VBS volunteers, or the kids ministry director. It was directed at fathers and mothers. This is you, parents. And and by the way, it is not um, a calling to the religious institution, and let me explain why. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you see where and when it's happening? It's not happening at the religious institution at 9.30 or 11.30. Rather, it happens at home and on the road. It happens when you get up in the morning or when you go to sleep. Who's there during those times? It's the family. It's the parents. It's not the teacher. Moses was not talking about formal education one day a week by a paid professional. He's talking about something that is part of the home culture. You shall teach your kids about God and show your love for God in formal settings, as well as informal settings, in public as well as in private. You can um, Affection is something that can't be taught. It has to be caught. Verses 8 and 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Jews took this command so seriously that if you go to Israel and go to the Western Wall, the, the Wailing Wall, and you, look, and you look closely at Orthodox Jews praying, one of the things that you'll notice is, are, are some people with uh, phylacteries, these little uh, box-like things on their forehead. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Or if you go to an Orthodox Jew's home, as you enter, you look at the doorpost, one of the things you'll notice are uh, mezuzahs, these little decorative containers. I asked uh, my um, brother-in-law, my, uh, my younger sister is uh, married to a Jewish man, and I asked him, hey, uh, do you, does your family have mezuzahs? And he said, yes. And he says that um, one of his nieces is, is so uh, devout that whenever she comes into the house, she'll kiss it, and then she, they have one in each of the bedroom doors too, so, and they'll do that too. The phylactery and the mezuzahs are supposed to remind these people that the base truth that there's only one God and we shall love that God with all our heart, soul, and mind should be so prominent in their home it should be always on our minds and always a part of our home culture it should be on your gates so that when people see you that's what they know you for in the new testament we are called to go make disciples of all the nations right it says that we ought to make disciples in uh, jerusalem judea samaria to the remotest parts of the earth remember that we have to go uh, make disciples and, and and we call that missions and evangelism. But I want to say this, and I've said this in the past, I've I've written about it, and I will say this again and again. We have a responsibility to, as a church with a big C, to go and make disciples, even of people in China or of Indonesia and Honduras and such, but we have the greatest responsibility to make disciples of those in Jerusalem or in our home, those whom we have the greatest influence on, the people whom we are closest to, first. That's our children. Our harvest field is first and foremost in chapel one and chapel two. It's those kids whom you're driving home today, the kids that you are tucking into bed at night, That's your mission field, first and foremost. When this chapter begins, verses 1 and 2, now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. God says to the people, this is not just to you, but it's to your kids and the kids that have not been born to your kids yet. In chapter 6, verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord, our God, has commanded you, you shall have um, this relationship with your kids so that your kids will ask you and have spiritual conversations with you. Mom and dad, why is it that other kids can play on Sundays but you insist that we go to church? Why can't we go to Disneyland on Sunday? We have annual passes. You can go in the afternoon. My older daughter, I am grateful to the church, accepted Jesus during a youth retreat, and I am still grateful for the youth pastor who um, gave a sermon that day and and my daughter came to Jesus and she was later baptized. And when I see him, I periodically remind him, hey, thank you again. My younger daughter, so that's a formal program. My younger daughter accepted Jesus in a different occasion. I wasn't home. My wife and my younger daughter were home and they were watching something on TV and apparently um, on TV that there was a young girl who died of a, a terminal illness. And they began to have conversations about what happens after death. And my young daughter, who was probably early elementary age, I asked, and, and my, my wife, you know, as she's putting her to bed, explained the gospel, and, and she accepted Jesus that evening. When you rise up and when you go to sleep. I know that for a majority of us, we feel inadequate as parents. We feel a little bit hypocritical as parents. We don't feel qualified, nor do we feel equipped, but I want to say that you are still their greatest discipler. And where you lack, learn. And even if you lack, your kids will want to know, I don't know the answer to this, honey, but let me go find out. Because they still trust you more than anyone else. They still, as kids, as as sometimes rebellious as they look, they still trust that their parents love them more than anyone else in the world. By the way, if you're here today and you don't have kids, you're an empty nester and saying, wow, this is so great, but uh, I don't have kids, so what do I do with this? I want you to know when Moses uh, said this to the nation of Israel, it's a collectivistic uh, people. He's not saying it to simply individual, but he's saying it to a people. He's saying you as a people, your sons and your sons' sons that I want you to know that you, even if you don't have children, uh, that you have a partial responsibility to, to the next generation. And that our children here, our youth kids here, need you. And I know you think, well, I, I don't know if I have much to offer, I'm a mess up. I want you to know this, that every parent here, you wanna humble anybody? Ask them if they're good parents in front of their kids. Almost every parent I know, unless they're severely disillusioned, will put their heads down and say, I I, I don't think I am. Listen, every parent needs um, other adults to come alongside their kids to help. Because every parent as perfect as they may be, as mature as they may be, they have blind spots and weaknesses. They need other people to come and support them in. And if, if there's ever a parent here who's perfect, if we have a perfect parent who never loses their temper, who never gets angry with their kids um, in, in an unrealistic way, if they're, if they're godly, and, and if, they, if they talk to their kids in an encouraging way always, if they never fail, if you have a sinless parent let me say this. That child needs help more than anyone else. What kind of crushing pressure is there on that child to try to live up to that parent's standard and example? That child needs a teacher who can say, you're a screw-up, I'm a screw-up. Let me tell you this. That God has hope for screw-ups like you and me. And that, that student will say, thank you. I've always felt overshadowed by the... the, the The success of my parents, I'm glad you're there for me. I asked Irvin Leung, our youth director, do you need more teachers? And he said, I actually do, especially female teachers. It's his name and email address, Irvin.Leung at livingwithteacher.org. I asked Rachel if they need Sunday school teachers. He said, yes, Rachel.Cho. At If you are here today and you say, "Well, I don't know if I've been called to this," I want you to uh, to reframe the question. I don't want you to frame the question as, "Have I been called to teach children or youth?" Rather, ask, "Have I been called not to?" Is there a compelling reason I shouldn't? Otherwise. Go make disciples. And I'll tell you why, more than almost any other ministry of the church, and I believe in everything that we do, but more than anything else, there is a window of opportunity for kids when their hearts and souls are still forming and before they get hardened and they go off. There's a window of opportunity for us to come alongside the parents and help mold the souls of these children and youth. So I'm asking you, And I I know that I am biased. I remember when I was in high school, when I was in college, when I was in uh, in post-college, I used to teach uh, Sunday school and later youth. I remember this one instance when I was teaching youth right out of college. I was working as an engineer, and one of our high school students got in a big, big fight with his parents. He got kicked out of his home. He didn't know what to do. The parents didn't know what to do. He came and lived with me in my parents' home for two weeks. I, I didn't know what to do but both his parents and he needed just someone to say, there's another adult in your life. I'm going to ask the band to come up and then the elders to come up. I know most of us feel like we're the screw-ups, that we're inadequate, that we're not equipped. But Jesus, when he gathered with the disciples and he... uh, He told them about the Great Commission. He gave them the the calling. He did not work with a group of people who were mature and ready. And Jesus knew that they will deny him, that they will uh, uh, flee from him. But he gave them the calling and said, it's not on the basis of how good and mature you are, but it is on the basis of what I've done for you. And he said, periodically, I want you to gather as a church of the, uh, and then remember the body and blood which was uh, broken for you and shed for you. The, the elders will come, uh, come around, the servants will come around, and, and if you are not a Christian, I would ask you to observe. And if you are, have unresolved issues, I would say, you know, you don't have to have everything right, but just determine that I will come to the Lord in honesty.
1: And we will rise again.
0: that Jesus did not pass the communion elements only to those who are mature and good and are are in a right trajectory, but rather he gave the communion elements, the Lord's Supper, to those who are screw-ups and who will be screw-ups. And he did so with a calling, and so if you're here today as a screw-up, immature, a lot of work ahead of you, would you take the wafer that was in the top layer let's partake together as jesus said this is my body broken for you and as so you take off the second layer which is this the aluminum foil and jesus passed a cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant do this as often as you remember me he did this as a as a symbol of the blood that was to be shed let's partake together So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. You did not wait for us to become mature or good or perfect, but you did it. While we were yet imperfect and immature and enemies, and we thank you for that. And thank you for the calling you've given to us, our one God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.